Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, everything we desire to do here this morning is something only your spirit can do. I pray that your spirit would be pleased to be with me, helping me to handle your word rightly, that your spirit would um, make the preaching of your word effective to transform hearts, and that your spirit would fill your people with worship and praise for your precious son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a, uh, a home movie of uh, two of our kids, Nehemiah and Ruthie. And Nehemiah in that home movie is uh, not three yet. Ruthie is not even two yet. And they're arranging alphabet letters. And um, Ruthie picks up a U and she just places it upside down. So it kind of looks like an N. And Nehemiah catches this rookie mistake right away. And um, he's visibly annoyed by it. And being the budding little genius that he is and the gracious older brother that he is, he uh, keeps correcting her over and over again. That's an upside-down you. You made it an upside-down you. And, um, you know, it's obvious when we see um, this pride in our kids. You know, he couldn't even pronounce the word upside-down right, but he knew the alphabet well enough to weaponize it and use it against his sister to keep her in her place. And so um, we can chuckle about this in our kids, but we don't find this attractive in other people. Uh, it's definitely pride, but it's also a specific form of pride. Um, it's self-righteousness. So what do you think of when you imagine a self-righteous person? Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is someone who's legalistic, always being critical of other people. Or maybe you think of someone who's always defending themselves and never takes responsibility for anything. Maybe it's someone who's always comparing themselves with other people to feel better about themselves. If we're honest, we can find aspects of all of these in ourselves. We know how easy it is to see hypocrisy in other people, but what are, what's the likelihood that no one else looks at us and sees hypocrisy in us? You see, the, what characterizes a self-righteous person is the belief that you don't have a need. It's like self-sufficiency. You only have something to give away. And some people aren't even worth giving it away to. And so at the heart of self-righteousness, we don't recognize our need, but the good news of Jesus is it starts with the bad news about us, that we need help from outside of us because we're not righteous. Far from what self-righteousness tells us, we know that something's not right and we need a savior. And so our passage today in the book of Luke um, we're going to see that Jesus restores those who acknowledge their need for him. It's those who humbly come to Jesus who find restoration in Jesus. And we're going to see three stories of restoration. And in them we'll see the willing Savior, the forgiving Savior, and the calling Savior. So we'll begin by looking at the willing Savior. And we're going to start um, in Luke 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. 
And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So leprosy in the Bible covers a wide range of skin diseases. Some of them were very contagious. And it says that the leper was full of leprosy. So this might have been a particularly severe case. And the leper has heard about Jesus, but um, he, and he doesn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal him. He calls him Lord, which at least acknowledges that Jesus has the ability and authority. Um, he gets the right to choose whether or not he will heal the leper. And the leper knows his condition is really desperate. He knows Jesus is his only hope. But the question, the big question, the thing that the leper isn't sure of is, does Jesus care? He can heal him, but is he willing to heal him? And we've all had lots of opportunities to pray for healing for people over the last few years. And for many of us, we are certain when we pray that Jesus can heal. But as symptoms progress, as the disease gets worse, uh, we're often left asking the same question. Maybe you're asking, does Jesus care? Let's look at Jesus' response in verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So the leper goes from being full of leprosy to immediately being clean. Jesus not only has the ability to heal, but proves he was willing to heal. But Luke wants us to see something more. He draws us to the fact that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper. He could have just spoken and the leper would have been healed. In fact, later in Luke, we're going to see him heal 10 lepers all at one time without ever touching any of them. So why did he touch this leper? Now, in the Old Testament law, you had to stay in a state of being clean in order to enjoy being in the community of God's people and God's presence. But all of the purity laws showed that it was nearly impossible to stay in a state of cleanness. You were constantly coming in contact with things that would make you unclean. So uncleanness isn't synonymous with sin, but it is a live picture of how all of life is corrupted by sin, and it affects our relationship with God. We can't effectively clean ourselves up and make ourselves worthy to be in God's presence. And lepers were always in a state of being unclean. They had to live alone outside the camp. They had to live away from God's community in God's presence. And if someone touched a leper, they themselves would be considered unclean as well. They too would be unfit to be amongst God's people in God's presence until they follow the laws to be considered clean again. So when Jesus touched the leper, part of the miracle wasn't just that he healed him, Jesus's, but, but also that Jesus didn't become unclean from touching him. It's like the contagion has been reversed. Through contact with Jesus, you actually catch purity. Jesus' purity is so complete that he's not contaminated through contact, but his purity transfers to the leper. So again, we see something about Jesus' ability. In addition to his ability to heal, he also has the ability to touch the leper without becoming unclean. 
But again, why would he want to touch the leper? One of the members of our church works in an ER in one of the hospitals in town, and he has shared before about how he's helped um, homeless people. Uh, and when they've come in, like some of them have lived in such isolation for so long, they haven't felt human touch in years. And so this nurse tries to take the opportunities just to show the warmth of a handshake or placing a hand on the shoulder, just letting them know that instead of being afraid or repulsed by them, that they're valued, that they're welcomed. And Jesus' Jesus' touch communicated that he wasn't repulsed, he wasn't afraid. He was compassionate, gracious, and very near. Jesus cares. And Jesus touching uncleanness shouldn't surprise us when we recognize that his entire incarnation was him throwing himself into the uncleanness of our world for the sake of our restoration. Where in your life do you feel most isolated, most unclean? Where do you feel like Jesus reaching out to you would be like him reaching out to touch a leper? Whatever rejection you've endured, however repulsive you may feel, Jesus is not only able to cleanse you, he wants you to feel his hand resting on your shoulder. If Jesus is like this, then we should draw near to him. The leper drew near to Jesus and Jesus drew nearer to him. Jesus is the one ready and able to bridge the impossible gap between us and him. Seek him and you will find that he is not that far off. So the leper is healed, and now we're going to see Jesus tell him to go do something. Let's read verse 14. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now there's something really interesting here about the difference between um, what Jesus was able to do versus what the law could do. If you read through Leviticus, you'll find the word leprous used 31 times. And yet, despite everything it has to say about leprosy, the law of Moses didn't have a single way to heal a leper. It only had instructions for how to verify whether a leper wasn't a leper anymore. So Jesus did what the law had never been able to do when he healed the leper. So if the leper's already clean apart from the law, why did Jesus go tell him to obey this law. You see, the leper still lacked one thing. By going to the priest and proving that he was clean, he would be restored back into the full fellowship of God's people and God's presence. So Jesus wasn't just concerned with the man's physical suffering. He also wanted the man's full restoration into God's community. Now, maybe you think becoming a Christian is all about cleaning up your life, and obeying rules. But when Jesus restores you, he doesn't begin by giving you a list of things to do, but rather a place to be. He wants us to be with him and to be with his people. All the obeying that he commands actually serves our belonging. It helps us to love him and love others. It helps us to draw deeper into his community. And we're so individualistic that this can be really hard for us to get. Maybe you and community are like two magnets that can't decide whether to attract or repel one another. 
Sometimes the idea of belonging is nice, but it still feels safer to go it alone. But the God who is in himself, community in Trinity, doesn't save us into self-sufficiency and autonomy. He saves us into his community. Let's read verses 15 to 16. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So Jesus' fame continues to spread, but Jesus prefers to withdraw instead of embracing the fame as a healer. And these things are clues that Jesus has different priorities than the crowds. And we're going to see this built out a little bit more in our next point, the forgiving Savior. So let's continue reading, starting in verse 17 through verse 20. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Here we see another healing story, but did you see the difference in how Jesus is approached? Where last time the leper wasn't sure if Jesus was willing to heal, here the paralytic's friends don't have any doubt. These, um, Luke uses all these action words. They're bringing, seeking, went up on the roof, let him down through the roof. They did whatever they needed to do to get their friend to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith. In fact, this is the first time in the book of Luke that he uses the word faith. And faith isn't wishing something hard enough that it comes true. It's not a mind game where if I can imagine I already have something, then I'll get it. It's not a commitment to a principle that everything works out in the end. Faith in the Bible is essentially trust in a person. It's complete dependence on Jesus. And here they trusted Jesus. They were certain Jesus was the one who would help them. Now at this point, we would expect Jesus to heal the man, right? Um, We just saw this happen with the leper. But just like the friend's convictions are different, so is Jesus' response to them. Jesus does something that neither the crowds, the friends, or the Pharisees expected. He forgave the paralytic's sins. Back in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's prophecy has a portion that talks about salvation coming through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercies of God. And while we've already seen his tender mercy in saving a man from leprosy, now we see Jesus' tender mercy in saving the paralytic from his sins. But why does Jesus prioritize forgiving the man's sins instead of healing him? Have you ever had a surgery that didn't do anything to help the problem? Maybe either you or a friend went into surgery um, and then the doctors got in and realized that they couldn't find what they were looking for. There was all this hope going into it. This would finally fix the problem, but then it turns out you had the wrong diagnosis. Or maybe you've had a shot in your back to take away pain, but after a few weeks, the pain comes right back. 
The shot was never going to fix the problem. It was only there to temporarily mask the problem so you could live as if you didn't have anything wrong, as, you did, as if you didn't have an injury, um, but you knew all along that the shot wasn't going to fix anything. It was powerless to address the underlying issue. Well, our greatest problem is our need for forgiveness. That's the correct diagnosis. That's our underlying issue. And it just so happens that this is exactly the problem that Jesus is most interested in fixing. Jesus cares about suffering, most of all, eternal suffering of separation from him. So the man's paralysis is actually um, a demonstration of the eternal problem of separation from God. It's our own desperate situation in sin. This is total paralysis. He couldn't walk. He doesn't even say a word in the passage. He doesn't do anything. The man who had to be carried is the one that best illustrates our total inability to help ourselves. This is the salvation beyond what, this is the salvation beyond what the paralytic ever considered. He wanted saved off of his mat, but Jesus saved him into right relationship with God. He gives us what we didn't even know was our greatest need, forgiveness and restoration to God. Jesus isn't interested in giving you a temporary fix, a shot for temporary relief. He wants to take care of your underlying issue. So do you ever wrestle to believe that God is willing to forgive you? Do you have certain sins in your, from your past that you just keep asking God over and over again to forgive you for because you feel like they're just too big? You crossed a line. Or maybe God's reluctant to forgive. Maybe he'll do it as a kind of transaction, but he's not happy about it. He's frowning at you like a disappointed coach. But we see here he's eager to forgive you. He wants it more than you do. His forgiveness might not compel you to come down through a roof, but it compelled him to come down into humanity. What is bad enough to make him reluctant to forgive you when you come to him for help? If you believe who Jesus really is, then nothing can keep you from getting to him. In all of your spiritual paralysis, just receive him. And right away we see the Pharisees' response. Let's read verse 21. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This passage is the first time that Luke mentions the scribes and Pharisees. And right away, they have a conflict with Jesus. In verse 17, they had come from all over, including Jerusalem. And as Jesus taught, they were sitting there. It's interesting to note that Luke doesn't say that they came to hear or to listen, but that they came to sit. It's almost like he's hinting that they came with a critical ear. They are important people from the most important places coming to assess Jesus' teaching. And when Jesus says that he forgives the paralytic sins, they rightly recognize that Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. They consider the right question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now you might ask, why can only God forgive sins? Don't people forgive each other too? The Bible tells us to do that, right? But we have to remember that even though we do sin against each other, all sin is ultimately personally committed against God. 
Who God is is what determines what's good and evil. And he's the only one who can decisively forgive us for our offenses against him. So when Jesus stands there and forgives the paralytic sins, he's claiming to embody all that God is that has been violated and offended by the man's sins. He's claiming to have authority to stand in for God on earth and declare that every one of this man's sins have all been taken care of. So by claiming to forgive forgive sins, Jesus is claiming to be God. But he goes even further. We'll see in the next couple verses, he also refers to himself as the son of man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And this is the first time in Luke that Jesus uses this term for himself. And the last time he'll use it is actually at his trial where it's used against him to condemn him to death. Now, sometimes the phrase son of man can just mean that someone is a regular man. Uh, Kind of like in our memory verse this week, where it says that God is um, not a son of man, that he should change his mind. But it also can be a reference back to a vision in the book of Daniel, where we see this divine yet human figure in heaven that's approaching God and being given authority over everything. So let's read that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So Jesus comes right out and claims to be this divine human, son of man, come to earth with authority to forgive sins. He forgives because he is God. And immediately the Pharisees aren't buying it. Whoever Jesus thinks he is, he is speaking blasphemy. And blasphemy is a crime worthy of death. Remember that Luke is writing so that we can have certainty about the gospel message we've been taught. And one of the things that he needs to show us is how it came to be that Jesus was rejected and killed by the Jews and then embraced by the Gentiles as their savior. Is it reasonable that Gentiles worship a rejected and executed Jewish teacher? Luke wants to show us the evidence that Jesus is God and that his death on the cross was part of God's plan all along. And it only takes five verses to go from introducing the religious leaders to them condemning Jesus for claiming to be God. This passage starts the trajectory that will ultimately end in the cross. From the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus will be put to death for claiming to be the God who forgives. But ironically, Jesus gives himself up to die because he is the God who forgives. Jesus, the perfect God-man, dying to pay for our sins is precisely what makes forgiveness possible. So Jesus is claimed to be the God who can forgive sins, but now he's going to prove it. Let's read verses 22 to 26. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Before Jesus even performs the miracle, we see subtle evidence of his divinity. Did you notice that? He knows their thoughts. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And doesn't that amaze you that he knows the faithlessness inside of the Pharisees, and yet he, his response is to give them further reason to believe? He heals the paralytic, and Luke uses that word immediately again. Like the leper, the paralytic's healing was instant and complete. The paralytic goes from having to be carried on his bed to carrying his bed that he'd been confined to. And immediately, um, the nature of the healing shows us that this wasn't hard for Jesus to do. It proves that he is God and he can forgive sins. So remember, Jesus has identified that forgiveness was the man's greater problem. He prioritized it. And while the physical healing definitely demonstrated compassion, it was secondary. It was meant to prove and direct us back to forgiveness. And not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins, not only is Jesus willing to forgive sins, but in our passage, he's the only one desiring forgiveness to take place. The Pharisees never expected God to care about sinners. The paralytic and the friends only expected him to heal the paralysis. But Jesus is God come for sinners, and he's eager to forgive. And this is an important transition in our passage. Now we see that external healing is a picture of the spiritual healing that he came to accomplish. The physical healings are a sign that the kingdom is breaking into our world. They're a bridge to the spiritual reality of forgiveness. They make it visible, but it is now that we, um, now maybe you, you hear all this, but actually the thing that's most difficult for you is not that Jesus would forgive you, but the fact that Jesus hasn't healed you. I believe in Jesus, I know I'm forgiven, but if he can heal the leper and the paralytic, then how come he hasn't healed me? The pain and that you've gone through, what you're enduring right now might be so overwhelming that forgiveness just doesn't sound very helpful right now. But if God has forgiven you, then no matter how terminal your illness might be, you are promised resurrection life with Jesus for all eternity. Healing the paralytic pointed to the reality of God's kingdom, but forgiveness is what gets you into the kingdom, and that's where we experience healing forever. In talking about this with Tyler this past week, he made the observation that for us, the proof that our sins are forgiven is not a lame man walking, but a dead man rising. Jesus coming out of the grave proves our forgiveness and our future. One day, we too will rise out of the grave. So being forgiven, far from being unhelpful to your healing, is the one thing that guarantees you will be healed. You will know life without pain in God's presence with God's people forever. And so now after showing Jesus' priority of forgiveness and proof that he is the God that forgives, Luke introduces the next section of our passage. And this is our third point, the calling Savior. Let's read 
verses 27 to 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So in the previous passage, Jesus called his first disciples, Peter, James, and John. And here we see the second time that he calls a disciple. And it's Levi, the tax collector. And Levi is the other name of Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote the book of Matthew. They're the same person, so we'll refer to him by both names today. And unlike the miraculous catch of fish in the last section with um, Simon, this time Jesus calling Matthew is pretty unremarkable. Jesus sees him, tells him to follow him, and Matthew gets up and follows him. On the surface, there's nothing really miraculous or special about it. And have you ever wished that you had a better conversion story? Well, on the surface, Matthew's three-sentence experience um, is pretty unimpressive too. But just like any of our testimonies, there's something miraculous that's happening here. First notice that there's something different compared to the last two stories we read. Jesus sees Matthew. Before we had the leper that had seen Jesus and had faith that he could heal him, Um, We had the friends of the paralytic that had heard of Jesus and got their friend to him. But Matthew's the only one in our passage who Jesus calls to himself. The others were motivated to come to Jesus for physical healing, but Matthew, who's just sitting there, comes because Jesus calls him. And this is what makes the short account so remarkable. Who did Jesus call? A tax collector should be the last person that we would expect They were on the farthest fringes of society. Maybe the only thing worse than the occupying Romans were tax collectors because they were traitors. They aligned themselves with Rome against their own people in order to extort their people for personal gain. And the detail that Matthew is sitting in the tax booth means that at that moment, he was still committed to this way of life. So Jesus isn't calling the best and the brightest with the most potential First, he picked fishermen, and now he's calling a corrupt and hated tax collector. So why did he choose this sinner? Well, the answer is actually found in why Matthew followed him. It doesn't say much, just that he was sitting there and Jesus called him. Peter followed him after seeing something miraculous and realizing he was unworthy of Jesus. But the miraculous thing that Matthew saw was Jesus looking at him saying, follow me. No one had to convince Matthew that he was unworthy. He knew very well who he was. He knew what other people thought about him, what his own people thought about him. And it was in his understanding of his unworthiness, his need, that all it took was Jesus' call and he was in. Matthew saw a miracle too, but this time it was the miracle that Jesus would call him. And this is what gives us hope in evangelism. You know, when you believe in a sovereign God that saves, it could be a temptation to um, excuse away not evangelizing, thinking that maybe that's a deterrent to evangelism. It's like, well, God has already chosen who is and isn't going to be saved. So, um, you know, if I try to evangelize someone who isn't chosen, I'm wasting my time. Or if I don't evangelize, well, he's, if he's chosen, he's going to get saved anyways. So that doesn't really matter. But The hope in evangelism is the irresistible call of Jesus. When Jesus chooses to call someone, they respond. You never know 
where you'll be or what you'll be doing when Jesus chooses to use you as the means of calling someone to himself. Don't you want to be a part of that? Now, Jesus calling the outcast in society is something that our culture would typically be approving of. The culture we live in is very affirming of you if you're in the minority or on the fringes of society. We often view labels as a badge of honor. What makes us different is also what makes us unique. So our culture loves the call to come as you are, but with Jesus, the call is to come as you are, but not to stay that way. Read the second half of verse 27 and verse 28 again. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Jesus calling Matthew wasn't Matthew's vindication. It was grace. It was a call to change direction, a call away from something. Where Matthew had been sitting as a tax collector, he had to rise and follow Jesus. Matthew, just like Peter, James, and John, leaves everything behind. He just gave up his career, his source of income, his identity as a tax collector. He makes a commitment that there's no coming back from. Matthew, the tax collector, has become Matthew, the follower of Jesus. This is an entirely new identity, a new way of life. What do you need to cut yourself off from to be truly devoted to Jesus? What things in your life prevent you from really following him? Matthew couldn't keep being a tax collector on the side. You have to heed Jesus' call and change direction. Some things have to go and other things get repurposed into the service of Jesus. And this leads us into the next few verses where we see Matthew doing just that. Let's read verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So how many of you celebrate becoming unemployed by hosting a feast? This was definitely the most expensive celebration Matthew ever put on because there's no recouping the cost of this meal. But Matthew uses what he has in the service of Jesus. And this is a point throughout the book of Luke that um, he wants us to see our finances as a commodity for the kingdom. When we follow Jesus, we use our finances to honor Jesus and draw others to him. And so Matthew reaches out to his contacts, other tax collectors and people on the fringes of society, and he invites them to dinner so they can meet Jesus. He wants others to share in the joy of meeting Jesus And this fits with the view of discipleship that we've already been introduced to. Remember, when Jesus called his first disciples, Peter, James, and John, the only thing they know about discipleship with Jesus is that from now on, they'll be catching men. Well, the large catch in Peter's boat is parallel with the large company of men in Matthew's house, the company of tax collectors and other outsiders. Matthew's first action as a follower of Jesus is to start catching men by inviting them to dinner in Jesus' honor. And Matthew is positioned perfectly to reach this crowd of sketchy people. The tax collectors know that Matthew is safe because he's one of them. And Matthew testifies that Jesus is safe, but not because he's just like one of them, but because he's calling them. Who are you perfectly positioned to reach out to? 
Sometimes we listen to sermons and podcasts and blogs and feel like there's a million things we're supposed to be involved in and doing in order to be a good Christian. You should be on the board of your homeowners association and you should be serving at the food bank and you should be going on a missions trip and you should be doing street evangelism and and more and more. And discouragement might even keep you from doing any of those things. But sometimes we just need to start by realizing who's already around us and just asking them to join you for dinner. There are a couple of kids in our neighborhood who come over and play with our kids all the time and their parents aren't believers but we've invited their kids to stay for dinner and to stay for family devotions and their parents have given them permission to stay. So after dinner, they join us in the living room and they follow along with scripture, they sing songs with us, they pray with us. Um, And early on after one night, Patty said, do you realize that tonight we got to see an 11-year-old read scripture for the first time? It was so simple and natural to invite them into what we were already doing. But you see what a privilege that is. It doesn't have to be a party for a large company. It can just be whatever you were already planning for dinner that night. But keep your eyes open for who you might introduce to Jesus. Just as the paralytic's friends had done whatever they could to get the paralytic to Jesus for physical healing, now Matthew's doing what he can to get his former circle of friends to Jesus for a different kind of healing. This also occasions the second conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. Let's read verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees don't actually talk directly to Jesus, but they've moved from thinking their objections in their heads to vocalizing their objections to the disciples. So things are slowly escalating. And they're upset that Jesus and his disciples are sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Note that Luke just referred to them as tax collectors and others, but the Pharisees call these others sinners. So Whatever made these people outsiders, whether they were prostitutes or had diseases like the leper, the Pharisees' assessment is that they are ritually and morally unclean. No devout Jew would ever associate with them. So Jesus needs to explain himself. So where the first conflict focused on Jesus doing something too high for a man in forgiving sins, now they accuse Jesus of doing something beneath a righteous man in associating with sinners. They can't fathom Jesus being elevated to do what only God can do, but they also can't fathom God condescending to do what he's doing right now in associating with the lowly. But Jesus isn't intimidated by sketchy people and shady characters. He wasn't made unclean by touching the leper, and he's not made unclean by eating with sinners. Now, he doesn't join them or affirm them in sinful practices and immorality. Instead, he's inviting them to himself and to the kind of change that we've already begun to see in Matthew. And this is challenging to how we think about unbelievers, especially those who are different from us. Where do you have a tendency to not associate or wrongly associate with people who don't follow Jesus? We don't like to admit it, but for many of us, there's some significant prejudice we'd have to overcome to interact with the unclean of our day. Where does either the Black Lives Matter or Trump 2024 sign on your neighbor's lawn indicate to you that one of those people is unclean? 
Would it be uncomfortable for you to share a meal with a neighbor who is in a different income bracket or a different stage of life or has a disability? Where do you not want to deal with people who are different from you? On the other hand, maybe it comes easy to hang out with unbelievers. You drink freely with them at the brewery and laugh with them about your favorite show. And maybe you feel like you're a great example of Jesus in this passage. But are you wrongly associating with unbelievers? Jesus was distinct from sinners even as he ate with them because he was sinless. He never affirmed or joined them in sin. His time with them was all about calling them to himself. So ask yourself, am I engaging sinners without engaging in sin? Am I helping them see their greatest need? And am I introducing them to Jesus? Now let's read Jesus' response to the Pharisees in verses 31 to 32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's the punchline of our entire passage. Jesus' answer shows us that what we've just witnessed is a live parable in the leper, the lame man, and Levi. Who was sick in our passage? The leper needed a physician. The paralytic needed a physician. They knew they had a need. They recognized their need for Jesus. They humbly came to him for help. But even with the paralytic, we started seeing that transition of the priority of forgiveness. That is our greatest need, and that is what Jesus has come to be the solution for. The two needs of the sick got us to the healthy sinner, the tax collector, Matthew. The two sick men who know they have a physical need set us up for the sinful man who knows he's got a spiritual need and Jesus calls him to repentance. And when Jesus says he doesn't call the righteous but sinners, should the Pharisees be flattered? We're the righteous ones. It's the really bad people who need Jesus to straighten them out. But no, this isn't a compliment to the Pharisees. Instead, it's an indictment. Jesus doesn't call the righteous because there are no righteous people except for him. But it's only those who humbly acknowledge their need for Jesus that come to Jesus. How do you know that you're right with God? Maybe you're known for being a person of integrity. You, just, you try to do good things and just trust that you've lived a good enough life. Or maybe you're known for being very religious, and it might even be frustrating that it's hard to find a Christian friend who's as serious about their faith as you are. But we have to realize that what makes us worthy of Jesus is seeing how unworthy we are. You see, the Pharisees can't stand sick people because they think that they are healthy. But if you don't acknowledge that you're sick too, then you'll never come to the physician. But whatever else you trust in to make you okay with God, it's like taking ibuprofen and thinking it'll fix cancer. Jesus is the only savior, but he has nothing to offer the self-righteous because they think they've taken care of their problem themselves. One time I was going to a physical therapist and I got to know him over several months. And you know what it's like when you get to know someone and you care about them and you just really want them to know Jesus. Um, Well, he wasn't interested. uh, And I think in his experience, he felt like Christians could be pushy. So I, I wanted to try to share with him why I, me sharing Jesus with him wasn't because it was motivated by self-righteousness, but because it was motivated by care for him. I said something like, 
I'm sure that as a physical therapist, you see a lot of people who have bad posture or um, injuries, they're dealing with pain, and you know that you could help them, but they won't acknowledge they have a problem. And he got what I was saying and he chuckled. You see, he didn't recognize he had a problem, so he couldn't see the love and grace of Jesus in what I had to offer. We come empty and needy to Jesus or we don't come to him at all. Let's reread verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we've looked at the call of, to sinners, but what are sinners called to? A call to follow Jesus is a call to repentance. Now Jesus doesn't build out a doctrine of repentance here, but he doesn't have to. We've already started to see what repentance looks like, haven't we? We've, we're starting to, to get an idea of repentance and how Matthew has begun to follow Jesus. Repentance is a change in direction. Everyone changes direction in our passage. Leper changes direction to go show himself to the priest. Layman changes direction, walking home with his bed. Matthew goes from sitting in his tax booth to hosting a feast for Jesus in his home. Matthew experiences an inner repentance that leads to a change in direction for his whole life. Jesus calls us to a wholly different life. And this life involves community. Before we saw how Jesus wanted the leper to be restored to the covenant community, but here Jesus is building a new community and it's made up of everyone who responds to his call by repenting and following him. And part of how we live out repentance in Jesus' community is by staying in our recognition of our need for him and not drifting back into self-righteousness. I worked in retail for a number of years, and I really tried to be a witness for Jesus at my job. But years without much fruit um, was really discouraging to me. And there came a point in time where just in looking at my coworkers and their lack of interest in Jesus and their love for the world, um, I just started to withdraw. I became self-pitying and really angry. I felt justified for feeling this way, though, because I figured this must be how frustrated God is with these people. One of my coworkers was a struggling Christian who I had tried to encourage and help on multiple occasions. And she came up to me one day and she said, do you care about your witness anymore? And I could tell in that moment that God was using this to get through to me. And she said, your attitude is just destroying your witness. And that was really humbling. She was putting me in my place. I had always been the super Christian. I was the one who was supposed to help her. But here I was being corrupt, uh, corrected by one of the people who I had been discouraged by their progress in the faith. My problem and the reason my heart was hard towards my coworkers was that I was being self-righteous. I, God had to humble me because I wasn't humbled by his mercy meeting me in my greatest need. I was all about my performance and forgot that my worth came from Jesus's grace in the midst of my unworthiness. And when I stopped seeing my need for Jesus, I stopped loving others with his love. But isn't it an amazing relief to know that Jesus came for sinners? You may not know all the ins and outs of what Jesus would have you do, but you know enough to start changing direction towards him 
right now. Never stop recognizing your need for Jesus. Come to the Jesus that is willing, forgiving, and calling. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so good to us. Thank you for being the God that is near. Thank you for coming for us in the midst of our sickness and need. You're worthy of our lives, and you're worthy of us leaving everything behind to follow you. Help us to take another step deeper into your fellowship and your community by your grace. Be glorified in our hearts trusting you, our feet following you, and our voices calling others to come meet you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.